Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Whether you're a fan of Katy Perry's California Pop or Mavis Staples' Chicago Soul, there's a ton of new music coming out this fall. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Cotter of the Chicago Tribune. We're going to review the season's big new releases, and then Jim is going to add a song he can't live without to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. Time now for some music news. As anybody knows who's been listening to Sound Opinions for the last few years, the money pool in the music industry is shrinking big time. That has put added pressure on the so-called performance rights organizations to step up their role. What the performance rights organizations do, like ASCAP and BMI, is to go to various institutions that use recorded music and collect fees for playing that music. We're not only talking about radio stations, TV and cable networks, and film studios. We're talking about bars, grocery stores, fitness centers, basically any place that plays recorded music that is copyrighted is liable by law to pay a fee that is collected by one of these collection agencies and then in turn, theoretically, turned over to one of the 800,000 songwriters that they represent. It's a big job, and it was chronicled recently in a New York Times Sunday Magazine article by contributing writer John Bowe, also the author of the book Us Americans Talk About Love. We've got John on the line, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Greg and I have talked at length uh, from time to time about BMI and ASCAP, the so-called performing rights organization. But in this piece, you really had a way of bringing it home what these organizations do. Uh, Tell us how you started with this idea. I started with the idea a long time ago. My brother, Kevin, is a songwriter in Minneapolis. So many, many years ago, he had talked about BMI and ASCAP and what that little sticker means in the front of a lot of restaurants or bars. Mm -hmm. So I knew that these places have to pay, and I understood the idea of music rights. And I think what got me going was just self-interest. You know, I'm a writer, and I see the future of books, and it's just like the future of music. And film industry is next, and I just see all of this stuff going digital, and it made me get curious about what these people's day-to-day life is like. The person who's down lower on the totem pole who's just the day-to-day enforcer of music rights. BMI and ASCAP, between the two of them, represent about 800,000 songwriters. What exactly do these representatives for these rights organizations uh, do for their daily jobs? You followed a few of these BMI representatives around the country, right, John? Yeah, and the side of the business that I followed represents something like 12 or 14 percent of their business, called the General Licensing Division. And they go after fitness clubs or funeral parlors or bars and discos and whatever 
kind of businesses that are open to the public playing music, and if they haven't registered with BMI or ASCAP or both, they remind them or they alert them to the fact of copyright law. And it's interesting because very few businesses can meaningfully say, we're not going to play your music, but they all act like they're entitled to have the right to play it for free. Let's put it in perspective, though, John. We're not often talking about a giant disc attack. It's like a little old Italian guy in a barbershop. I mean, I wrote this story once in Hoboken, New Jersey, and he would keep light FM on as he cut haircuts. And and one day, the BMI or ASCAP police show up, and they try to shake him down for like a 1000 bucks a year so that he can play the radio while he's cutting hair. <laughs> and, you know, his reaction was, what? You know, all my life I've been an artist and a hippie and a freak and whatever, and I'm almost always on the side of the non-corporate, non-business, non-big business end of the deal. But when it comes to this, I totally am on the side of BMI and ASCAP and the musicians because the fact is that even this little nice barber guy who's probably a family guy and probably doesn't make a million bucks a year, he's still using something for free, and he uses it to make money. A lot of it is an awareness issue, I would imagine. A lot of the people that these BMI representatives approach in their businesses are probably shocked at the have to pay anything. Correct. That's true that there are a ton of, you know, tens and tens of thousands of businesses who have no idea that they need to be paying for this. And, you know, like anybody, if you find out that you have to pay for something, you, most people react negatively. <laughs> well, tell us about some of those <laughs> negative reactions. Well, this woman who I wrote about, Devin Baker, works in an office in Nashville. And maybe three weeks out of four, or four weeks out of five, she's sitting there in the office calling people. So a lot of the stuff she gets over the phone. And one of my favorites was there was a guy in Kentucky somewhere who said he was going to come over to Nashville and spray her down with a machine gun. <laughs> I like the punk rock club owner who followed her out the door and spit on her paperwork. Yeah, she said, get out of here, and uh, followed her out to the parking lot and honked a big goober and stuck the contract onto the windshield with it. <laughs> Let me get back to the Italian barber. If the radio is on, Artists are getting paid a performance and a songwriting royalty for the song that's played on a major FM station to begin with. With a bar or a club, you can make the argument that going there for the music is part of the experience, right? You're not just going to pay a dollar extra for a beer. You're getting the music. It's The music is part of the ambience. Does anybody really go to, you mentioned a funeral parlor or, or the barbershop. Does anybody go there because they play really fine tunes there? These guys from BMI gave me some very good examples, and they said, go to a restaurant sometime and imagine what it's like if they turn down the music. And you're going to hear a lot of plates clanking and forks on plates. And I bet you anything, people will stay less time, and they will drink less, and the restaurant will make less money. So the real principle at stake is if you're using somebody else's stuff to make money, why shouldn't you have to give them a tip? And I think that's always been the intention of it. It's never been to gouge people or bleed people to death, but it is more like if you're making a healthy profit, you need to give some of this to the people who are helping you make that profit. Two questions, John. What kind of fees are these uh, businesses paying to play this music? I'm sure there's a whole range of it, but if you can give us an idea of what that is. And then part two, where does that money end up? Do the artists actually get paid for having their music played in the barbershop? For a smaller venue, I think the lowest fee is something like 385 you know, which comes down to less than 10 bucks a week. And then for huge businesses, like $9,000 a year. 
But I think the average of the places that I was able to witness and see, it was always just a few hundred dollars a month, I mean, a year. Mm -hmm. So your part two was, how does the money get distributed? You know, you can imagine BMI and ASCAP each have something like 400,000 artists, give or take. And um, they have these really complicated computer systems to try to keep track of everybody. Because imagine when each one of these songwriters moves, they send in a change of address thing, and it's got to be in the computer, and they've got to mail out a check. So one complaint that you do hear, and I suspect it's probably legitimate, is that the bigger artists get all the money and the little guys don't get their fair share. That is the knock by musicians at the level of, say, your brother. Madonna gets a couple of tens of thousands of dollars more a year, thanks to the stringent efforts of the performing rights organizations, and Joe, the singing plumber, doesn't get squat. Well, imagine if you were in charge of doing all these disbursements, would you, and you've got to spend a certain amount of computer time and staff time tracking down every one of your songwriters. Let's say at the lower end of the spectrum, these people are getting only a couple dollars every quarter. Are you going to justify spending $50 tracking them down to give them $2? We're also moving into a future where copyright is completely being blurred. A lot of people are used to getting music for free. Peer-to-peer file sharing has encouraged the notion. It's got to be tough for these rights organizations to get across the idea that music is actually worth something. One of the reasons I was interested in these PROs was to see how they had competed or how they had fared against the music industry. With the music industry, they just totally failed to anticipate the coming of the Internet and what that would mean. And I think if they had set things up like iTunes or Rhapsody or whatever to make music available over the Internet, you would have seen a lot less stealing. So while they were screwing this up and while they lost something like 50% of their business in the last 10 years alone, you've seen BMI and ASCAP growing or holding their own every year. So you wonder, well, what did they do right? And I think one of the things they did right is whenever a new business comes along or a new business model, whether it's Rhapsody or Napster or whoever, they just go after them. And they say, look, we're going to give you the the carrot or the stick. The stick is we pursue you in court forever. Hmm. But the carrot is we want to make a deal with you and we'll make the deal cheap and we'll make the deal flexible. But basically the deal is if you're making money, you give us a small percent of that money. John Bowe has been talking about the role that performance rights organizations play in the current music industry. John, thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Thank you guys very much. You're listening to Sound Opinions. You're not alone. I'm with you. I'm lonely too. First up, Greg, on our Sound Opinions fall record review bonanza is the latest from Mavis Staples. You Are Not Alone, that is the title track of the album, and it features Jeff Tweedy of Wilco producing, 
playing some of the instruments, writing two songs, including that one for Mavis. A lot of anticipation for this. At age 71, Mavis Staples is nothing short of an American treasure. Started out at age 12 as the lead singer of the Staples Singers, that incredible gospel and soul combo led by her dad, the great Pops Staples. Mavis, I think, is long, long overdue for a commercial and critical resurgence of appreciation. This woman should be on TV shows everywhere. We should be hearing her music again in in movies. She should go home with a basket full of Grammys. Hasn't happened, even though in the new millennium she has put out a fine string of recordings, three of them in recent years, the first for Alligator Records, the last two for Anti, the really hip offshoot of Epitaph Records that kind of specializes in career resurgences. Now comes this record. Jeff Tweedy, of course, based in Chicago with Wilco, one of the great American rock bands today, is a fan. He put his heart and soul into working with her, recording this album at Wilco's Loft on the northwest side of Chicago. As I said, writing two songs. She's using her touring band, but he's also playing on the record, bringing in some folks from the Chicago music community to do backing vocals and play keyboards. And then there were a bunch of covers that I assume Tweedy, like Rick Rubin with Johnny Cash, had a role in putting on Mavis's agenda. What are the results? We're going to grade all the albums today on our patented buy it, burn it, trash it scale. But first we play a song. Here is Only the Lord Knows, the second of the Tweedy Pen songs from this new Mavis Staples record, You Are Not Alone, on Sound Opinions. Mavis Staples with the song Only the Lord Knows from her latest studio album, You Are Not Alone, on Sound Opinions. 
Jim, you mentioned that Jeff Tweedy, longtime fan of Mavis, produced and wrote a couple of songs on this record. I think an excellent job in associating her again with her road band. A lot of Mavis records have been recorded with hand-picked studio musicians, which is fine. I think uh, those records sound well and good. But Mavis has clearly established a vocabulary with this trio that came on board with her after her 2007 record, Will Never Turn Back, and has really established a chemistry with them. I'm talking about guitarist Rick Holmstrom, the bassist Jeff Toombs, and the drummer Stephen Hodges. They deserve a lot of credit for where Mavis is in her life right now. And where she is is in the midst of a career renaissance that is one of the great second acts in music history, as far as I'm concerned. This is a terrific record. The one thing that the band is is great at is giving her space to move. And we see all sides of her on this record. We see the funk. We see the gospel. We also see the intimacy with the ballads. There is a traditional, in Christ there is no east or west, where you, you can again hear that tenderness. And of course, the title song that Tweedy wrote for her is a beautiful ballad that shows another side of Mavis's singing voice. A lot of people associate her with that robust gospel call and response, and it's on this record, but you also get those other sides of her as well. I think it's showing all facets of this great singer, and the thing is you cannot separate the singer from the person. This is who Mavis is in real life. She's not playing a role here. This is who she is. And for that reason alone, we are talking about one of the great American singers. It's a buy it record all the way. Greg, I know you're going to get angry at me. I was listening to this record and trying to find out why it was striking me as a letdown, why I was not more excited about it. Let's not forget, Mavis as a personality is larger than life, irresistible. A young Bob Dylan was so in love with her, he went to Pop Staples and said, I want to marry your daughter, Mm -hmm. okay? I think Jeff Tweedy was intimidated. I think that this record just falls short. You know, I've been waiting for Mavis to release the masterpiece that would finally tell the world, this is one of the greatest American artists ever. The last three records have all been fine. This one is fine. It is not a masterpiece. I was hoping Tweedy would give her one. I don't think his songs are anything special. I don't think the John Fogarty, Alan Toussaint covers, uh, the Randy Newman cover, You Praise, I don't think those are anything special. Look at what Tweedy did with Woody Guthrie's material on those two Mermaid Avenue albums. I wish he had been more daring and taken Mavis out of the comfort zone and just pushed her a little. This is a fine record. This is a good record. I I know Mavis has got a brilliant record, a great record. I gotta say, buy it, burn it, trash it. This is a burn it record. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, more Buy It, Burn It, Trash It ratings of new albums by pop star Katy Perry and Georgia indie rockers of Montreal. And later, Jim is going to pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is Katy Perry with California Girls, the big hit single from her second studio album. It's number one in the country right now, Teenage Dream. You could not have missed that song. It was everywhere this summer. A lot of people were calling it the hit of the summer. Katy Perry came on the scene in 2008 with a debut album that sold multi-millions, quite an achievement in this decade of down music sales in the recording industry. That record was called One of the Boys, and you may recall it had that mildly transgressive hit on it called I Kissed a Girl. Note that is not the Jill Sobule song from the 90s. It was, quote-unquote, an original that became a big hit. Interesting background with Katy Perry. Her parents were very much involved with the church. She started singing gospel music, began transforming herself into a folk singer on the Los Angeles Cafe circuit a few years ago, and then came out with that big debut record in 2008. Big follow-up. She's working with some of the biggest name producers in the business. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play a track from Teenage Dream first. It's the title track from Teenage Dream on Sound Opinions. Title track Teenage Dream from Katy Perry's new, much hyped pop album. 
boy, this artist bugs me. I appreciate good bubblegum pop, but I like when it has a twist on it. Haven't we heard California Girls and a million great songs about California Girls a million times in the past? As you mentioned, Jill Sobiel did the I Kissed a Girl thing and better long before Katy Perry got there. There doesn't seem to be an ounce of originality, except when she is making a serious misstep, like remaking Hey Mickey, that Tony Basil hit, into a song called Peacock, which exists just to be lewd and pointless. She is not a great image for young girls who who comprise a big part of her audience. I think it's a little bit over the top in its overt sexuality. She doesn't have a great voice, not that that's ever mattered in this genre. I don't know what it is that she does have. You know, Lady Gaga, even if you hate her music, you can look at it and say, wow, this is kind of interesting, even as a like inside out twisted take on celebrity and pop stardom circa 2010. Katy Perry is just a product of the pop machine. Buy it, burn it, trash it. I guess this is a trash it record. Well, it's disappointing on a couple levels to me, Jim, because I'm mildly intrigued by the persona. You know, she seems to be actually having fun with this whole idea of being a pop star. There's sort of a ditziness that I kind of admire, in some ways reminding me of Cyndi Lauper, that whole girls just want to have fun phase, where she was sticking these kind of subversive messages in these outwardly kind of flamboyant and kooky kind of little songs, you yeah, know? Yeah, but Cindy Lauper was a strong woman. You don't oh, get yeah. any sense of strength from Katy Perry. Well, that's what I was hoping for from Katy Perry. I think that perhaps we could see some of that, but instead, it seemed like this record was written by a dirty old man. I think that this is the kind of record Howard Stern would love, you know? It's like this whole Girls Gone Wild persona in some of these songs, really kind of a troubling especially coming from a woman who claims to have co-written these songs. The producers do her no favors. I mean, I know she's working with some of the biggest names in the business, Dr. Luke, Max Martin, Tricky Stewart, Stargate. The vocals on this record sound totally digitally stuck together. I mean, I know that's pretty commonplace these days, but there is no sense of flow. I mean, listen to that chorus from Teenage Dream. It just punches you in the mouth one after another. The syllables just come out of her mouth yeah. as if she's not even singing these songs. Just give us like one note at a time. A yeah. computer put it together. I don't sense the personality behind it. There's another half of this record where she kind of comes out with that sort of goth, emo side of her personality. Again, formula songs. Very poor production. No sense of personality. So here's somebody you think has got all sorts of personality, and then you think they could have stuck a robot on here and sung these songs. Very, very disappointing. Trash it record for Katy Perry. Greg, that is a song called Success from the new self-titled album by Interpol, and success certainly is what this band has had since its formation at my alma mater of New York University in 1997. One of the most talked about bands from New York since The Strokes, I think. A key in that New York-centric art rock, dance rock, post-punk, new wave revival kind of sense. For the fourth self-titled album, they recorded it as the core trio that's existed from the beginning, but some, some lineup changes since. 
the bass guitarist Carlos Dangler left the group, was replaced by two names that are uh, really much buzzed about in the indie world. David Pajo is playing bass. He was original member of Slint and seen in Zwan briefly with Billy Corgan. And Brandon Curtis of Secret Machines has joined on keyboards. What are they going to be doing now? What is Interpol doing for the fourth time around? Let's play a song. This is called Lights from the self-titled fourth album, and then we'll give our reviews on Sound Opinions. That is Lights, a track from the fourth self-titled studio album from Interpol. Jim, they've been around for a decade. We kind of know the sound already, don't we? All four records seem to have been variations on each other. That first record sort of set the template for Interpol, and the next three records have basically played around with that same sound. This was a self-produced record. Their early stuff was produced by Peter Cadis, who made a big name for himself, producing a lot of those East Coast bands in the early part of this decade. So they self-produced this one. They didn't really change the sound all that much. One of the key touches, I thought, was bringing Alan Mulder to mix the record. Mulder, who has worked with people like Nine Inch Nails and Smashing Pumpkins and My Bloody Valentine in the past, a famed UK in-studio wizard, and does a nice job. I think what he did on this record that's a little bit different from some of their past ones is really brought out some of the details in the rhythm section. They do have an excellent rhythm section, and I would say that Carlos Dengler, the guy who just left the band, is probably the best musician in the band. But it's a pretty sad recommendation when the best thing you can say about the record is say, <laughs> you know, the bass lines are really cool, man. I don't hear the songs here at all. In theory, I dig what they're doing, these songs about obsession and desperation and the sort of Joy Division-ish quality to those baritone vocals. I like all that stuff, in theory. 
But the songs aren't here. They don't hang on very strong melodic structures. And by the last half of the record, you're really dealing with some heavy-duty atmosphere, and it's all atmosphere. There's no song. It's a trash it record as far as I'm concerned. I must concur, Greg. This is a trash it record. You know, Interpol is arguably bigger now than they have ever been. They're opening for you, too, on stadium tours. And I'll, I'll be darned if I can tell why. I noticed how mightily you fought to drop those words, joy and division, uh, you know, until late in your review. And then you couldn't hold out anymore. When you're talking about the only good thing being bass, yeah, of course the only good thing is bass because, you know, joy, division and later new order were driven by bass and Peter Hook. And these guys, what they are not stealing from joy, division from day one, they've taken from the cure. I hate to be that kind of critic that says, we've heard this before, it's been done before. You can always say, this sounds like that and this led to that, right? But these guys are so slavish in their devotion to that sound. And and that would even be fine if they wrote a song as good as anything Joy Division's ever given us or even the guitar-heavy early Cure, fine. Instead, you've got the sound and nothing behind it. A double trash it. That is Coquette Coquette from the new studio album by Of Montreal called False Priest. Of Montreal has been around a long time. The reason it is called Of Montreal, even though it is based right now in Athens, Georgia, is that is the city where it was originally formed. A singer Kevin Barnes apparently decided to start creating some music based on a relationship that fell apart in that Canadian city. It ended up in Athens, Georgia, as part of that second wave of Elephant Six bands that followed in the wake of Neutral Milk Hotel and Olivia Tremor Control that formed in that city with the idea of creating elaborate homemade style recordings very much in the psychedelic and orchestral pop traditions. Barnes, a hugely ambitious artist himself, he's put out 10 studio records in in a decade, plus anybody who's seen him live, pretty unforgettable. Whether you love it or hate it, and usually people are not in the middle on this guy, there's usually one opinion or the other, you don't forget him very easily. Very elaborate costuming, drawing on various traditions, a lot of that Bowie theatricality in his shows. He's performed in the buff a few times. When it comes to just over the top, Kevin Barnes has defined it for the indie rock scene. A scene not noted for its flamboyance, Kevin Barnes is giving it a little bit of that glam rock theatricality. This is his 10th studio album, as I said. What's unique about it in a number of ways, much more orchestrated than any of his previous offerings, and he's also working with a producer, John Bryan, the famed West Coast songwriter and producer who's done numerous movie soundtracks out there and also produced albums for people like Fiona Apple. So let's hear a little bit from Of Montreal's 10th studio album, False Priest. We're going to play a track called Our Riotous Defects on Sound Opinions. Oh. 
at that Al-Anon meeting, and you made that reference to all your goodies are gone, and even sang a verse. I was amazed how husky your singing voice was. I wanted to talk to you so badly, but I didn't know how to come on, because you got the kind of beauty that makes people nervous. I know it's up, but before we got together, I even hooked up with one of your cousins, just to feel somehow closer to you, because I knew like you guys were best friends, and you talked every day, and it was thrilling to touch something that had touched you. In my head, you were like this goddess, but in fact, you're just a crazy girl. That is our riotous defects from the latest record by Of Montreal, False Priest, here on Sound Opinions. Greg, I'm in the camp that has never gotten Of Montreal, and I don't think working with John Bryan has done much for the group. You know, there's a bit of sarcasm and insincerity in their theatricality. We can find lots of silliness in in the theatrical rock world, whether it's the rock musicals like Hair or Genesis, you know, Peter Gabriel dressing up as a giant daffodil. And that's fine. But I think that Barnes always wants to have it both ways. He's smirking at it at the same time he's trying to employ it. All of the Elephant Six bands, Apples in Stereo, Neutral Milk Hotel, Olivia Tremor Control, that really launched this movement and which of Montreal has always been eager to ape and claim that legacy, they were all, at the end of the day, great songwriters, and those songs stand tall. None of the tunes here stick with me. John Bryan adds a particular kind of uh, circus sideshow quality to the productions, which, I don't know, if you could pair Barnes down to just singing over a piano, would there be a song there? Maybe. But they never even try, so I have to say it's a trash at record. I disagree with you on the songs strongly. I think the songs are there. I actually think this is one of the more coherent efforts from Of Montreal. I'm with you on the fact that some of the past stuff has left me really cold. That last record in particular, Skeletal Lamping from 2008, was just a disaster. It was all over the place. It sounded like he wanted to cram every idea he ever had into the space of a few-minute song. This one is more coherent, I think partly because of uh, Brian's contributions. Big R&B influence on this record. He is doing his Prince tribute here uh, in a big way. And it may sound kind of odd coming from this white guy from Georgia, but, you know, he actually, he's been doing this for a while. and, And it's credible here because I think the songs and the hooks are here. I love the way some of these arrangements work with the way the vocals are layered, the way the keyboards are layered. The choruses are strong. At the same time, there's something about this guy that I'm still not buying. There's a gibberish quality to these lyrics. It it is almost done for effect. You almost feel like he's not being sincere, and that is where I agree with you, Jim. So I'd say the songs are good. What's he really talking about? I'm not so sure I'm buying it, so I'm going to give it a burn it rating. Now it's time for you to give us your record reviews. Tell us what you think of these albums, and we may put it on the air. Call 888-859-1800, or you can email us at interact@soundopinions.org, or talk to us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be back in a minute with the last review in our big record review roundup. 
the latest from golden god Robert Plant. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and that is Robert Plant with a track from his new album, Band of Joy. It's called Angel Dance, a cover by the band Los Lobos. Robert Plant, does he need an introduction? I mean, the man, uh, you know, founding member of Led Zeppelin, only one of the greatest hard rock bands of all time. Interesting history here with the title, Band of Joy. That was the name of Robert Plant's pre-Led Zeppelin band, the band in the North Country of England that he was in with John Bonham, the original Led Zeppelin drummer. So Plant and Bonham were in this band, Band of Joy. They were a psychedelic folk band, heavily influenced by American music at the time and the lyricism and poetry of the West Coast scene in America at the time. And now Plant has come around to that music once again in his career, especially in the last decade. One of the reference points, clearly, Led Zeppelin III, about half of that record was drawing on acoustic folk music, drawing on these ancient traditions. You can hear Plant picking up that thread again in the last few records that he's made. Mighty Rearranger in 2005, that collaboration with Alison Krauss that won a bevy of uh, Grammy Awards, Raising Sand in 2007, and now with Band of Joy, a new band that he has formed that revolves around the great Nashville guitarist Buddy Miller, who played for a long time in Emmylou Harris's Hot Band and has made a series of solo records on his own. Before we review Robert Plant's Band of Joy album, let's play a track from it first. We're going to play Monkey, a cover of a song by the band Low from Robert Plant on Sound Opinions. Time 
That is Robert Plant from the new album Band of Joy with the song Monkey. Greg, I can't figure out for the life of me, Zeppelin scholar though I am, why Plant is calling this new project Band of Joy. What Buddy Miller and the other important Americana Roots favorite who's on this record, Patty Griffin, what they have to do with that band from the mid-60s in the UK, I don't understand. Half of this album is kind of Plant's take on American country, folk, blues, American Roots music. And then there's another half where he's, he's taking those sounds and filtering through the timeless Celtic drone. When he starts talking about the Dark Lord's Ride at Night, you know, that classic Led Zeppelin mythology, I love that. I I don't mean literally, but I mean when he summons the Dark Lords and you get the drone and the heaviosity, just the creepiness. You know, it's wonderful and it's beautiful. We hear that on Monkey, for sure, even though it comes by way of Duluth, Minnesota with Lowe. You hear it on the opening trio, Angel Dance, uh, House of Cards, and Central 209, and then it gets lost in the rest of the album. I applaud him for not wanting to live in the past. I wasn't a big fan of the Alison Krauss record, but at least he was trying something different. Here, he's trying to have it both ways. You know, you've got this historic name, and you're doing some of the stuff that made you famous, and then you're doing some other stuff that Robert Plant brings nothing particular to. I I think it's a a burn-it record. Well, I was a big fan of the Raising Sand record, mainly because I saw Plant doing some things that he'd never done before, uh, namely the harmonizing with Alison Krauss. I mean, in the past, if you think about those Led Zeppelin records, or for that matter, most of his solo records, solo it's vocal, pretty much yeah. Robert Plant belting it out, the golden god, you know? Yeah. And he's found this new thing where he's gotten into this atmospheric roots music. I think he did it really well with T-Bone Burnett producing that record with Alison Krauss. I applauded the guy. I mean, he could have been out there on the road bringing together the reunited Led Zeppelin and playing stadiums around the world. Instead, he was doing this little side project that succeeded almost in spite of itself. On this record, he's trying to fashion a similar kind of vibe. He's doing everything from Lightning Hopkins songs. He's uh, referencing that uh, banjo master, Bascom Lamar Lunsford. He's doing low songs, the Minneapolis group. We just played and one Los of them. Lobos, yeah. And Los Lobos, yeah. And Los Lobos. And he's also referenced this relatively current Austin band, Milton Mapes, that most people probably have never heard of. And now suddenly he's covering one of their songs as well. You know, again, I applaud the adventurousness. That said, some of this stuff sounds really creaky and mushy to me. The, yeah. the, the banjo tunes, some of the more atmospheric stuff, really slow moving. I think the best stuff on this record by far for me are those low songs, the cover of Silver Rider and the one we played just now, Monkey, where Buddy Miller kind of gets to show some of his more atmospheric, psychedelic guitar touches. But it's a hit-and-miss affair. It's a burn-it record as far as I'm concerned. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as we can on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and drop a quarter in the jukebox to play a song we cannot live without, and now it's Jim's turn. Greg, one more release that I'm excited about coming this fall is a reissue of the first album by the British band Ride. We drop the name Shoegazer from time to time. In the early 90s, before the alternative explosion really blew up in America, there was a movement in the UK of very young bands kind of going back to psychedelic rock, updating 
the disorienting swirl of that sound and bringing it into a new era. There was a thought at that point with hip-hop really ruling the charts and techno music coming on strong in the underground that everything that could be done with two guitars, bass, and drums had been done. Okay, it's all played. In 1991 in America, a little band out of Seattle called Nirvana would put the lie to that notion, but the shoegazers got there first. Sadly, the Seattle explosion kind of overshadowed them here in America. To be a fan of Ride or My Bloody Valentine or Slow Dive in 1990 and 1991, kind of lonely, all right? (laughs) You were being amazed by these records that were coming over as pricey import CDs. I fell in love with Ride that way. There were three EPs that introduced a couple songs each from this band. Who was this band? Just these weird images of moody, atmospheric seascapes or landscapes on the cover. No pictures of them coming over. And then this album called Nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Ride has been on my mind a lot because I got to write the liner notes to this reissue and to talk to those guys again. I had interviewed them as a young fanzine writer when they first came here. And now here we were connecting 20 years later. Andy Bell was the main songwriter of the group. But Mark Gardner was the front man and singer. The two both played guitars, and the way their guitars merged, I think, was one of the most innovative since, really, television. It was a moody, dense, atmospheric sound, but there also was a ferocity live. The rhythm section was in that classic who mold, way over the top. Mm. You know, thundering drums, very complicated parts. So there was a, a severity to the sound at the same time that there was a hypnotic quality. Bell would go on to play in Oasis, play bass behind the Gallagher brothers Mm -hmm. when they lost their bassist a couple years, which was so sad. It's like having, like, Leonardo da Vinci (laughs) draw stick figures, you know? It's like, you know what more this guy is capable of. While Gardner these days runs a studio in Oxford, that's where they came together. They were at university. They were a mere 20 years old when their first record came out. And I will go on record as saying, Nowhere from 91 is as great a record as Nevermind and should be remembered in the same light. I'm going to play a song called Vapor Trail. This is one of the only songs on this debut album by Ride that Bell does lead vocals on. Here it is, my Desert Island jukebox pick, Ride, Vapor Trail on Sound Opinions. First you look so strong Then you fade away The sun will blow my eyes I want you anyway Thirsty for your smile I want you for a while You are a vapor trail
That was Ride's Vapor Trail on Sound Opinions. Greg mixed by Alan Mulder, who you mentioned earlier in the Interpol review. That is great stuff, Jim. I cannot get that enough. Next week, though, you're going to be really happy because we have one of the great bands of all time in the studio for an interview, Slayer. Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern has been Julia Mullen-Gordon. Our producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader and executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. He's grooving on that Katy Perry record. I don't know why. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. If you care to leave your name and number, she'll give you a ring when she is home. New messages. I'm so happy you guys did the Electric Warrior disc. That was totally rock. I am a person of color, uh, but the CD and rock and roll is, 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 is everything. And when I listen to that album, I lose myself. And uh, when I listen to Vanya Gong, I pick up some Klansmer and the horns. And then when he's a 21st century boy, hey, I'm gone. I'm lost. My name is Charles Edward Stanfield, and I'm from Mighty and Hope Park. Have a great day. Bye. Uh, this is Jason from L.A. I just finished listening to your album breakdown uh, for T-Rex, Electric Warrior. The history was interesting. The interview was interesting. The context was interesting. But the music just left me bleh. You know, there's just these sort of endless grooves with very little dynamic. The lyrics are boring. The guitars are boring. And a lot of the stuff that you guys say the T-Rex influenced, I really dig. But I just don't hear it in T-Rex itself. So... After, you know, your careful consideration, I'm still going to consider myself a non-T-Rex fan. So bang a gong and get on with a better album next time. Hey, this is Craig from Atlanta. Just listened to your summer road trip episode, and uh, one of your interviewees discussed the issue of underage crowd being kind of shut out from seeing a lot of music. I think another group that's being shut out is uh, folks that are a little bit older, maybe in their late 20s to late 40s, who are married and have kids and can't go see a bar band play at 10.30 or the uh, main act play at midnight. So uh, I think that would be an excellent uh, area for more venues to cater to folks who don't want to stay out till 3 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday night. Like the show. Bye. Hi, this message is for Jim and Greg. This is Mike from uh, Richmond, Illinois. You guys like to do album dissections? Well, a few weeks from now is the 40th anniversary of the death of Jimi Hendrix. I think you should do a career dissection 
exploring the career of Jimi Hendrix uh, from uh, his life, from cradle to grave. He put out just a few albums, but he's the most influential guitarist in history. Please, lay off the bubble gum. Examine some real rockers for a change, okay? Anyhow, keep up the good work. I enjoy listening to you guys. Hi, this is Stuart calling from New York City. In all the published reports about the late songwriter George David Weiss, nobody ever mentioned his most famous composition, and that would be that he co-wrote Snoopy's Christmas by the Royal Guardsmen. So if you're going to play anything, that would be the song to play. Thanks so much. The news had come out in the First World War The bloody Red Baron was flying once more The Allied command ignored all of its men And called on Snoopy to do it again No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Christmas Day.